The scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, you know, I don't know if you care about this or not, but the Mandalorian thing's been a big deal, um, you know, watching Mandalorian. And I remember growing up, and Boba Fett was not a good guy. Like, he was a bad guy. But ever since I have seen Baby Yoda and found the cutest creature ever created that's a puppet, you know, or whatever, um, and the Mando goes through all this effort to protect him, I am now a fan of, of course, the Mandalorians. I mean, how can you not be? But again, if you go back and watch it back in the day, you would not have been for Boba Fett. And I, you know, as I was thinking about that and this story, the question of what makes a person righteous, what makes them unrighteous, what makes a person good, what makes them bad? How do we know who is right and who is wrong? Like, what does that mean? Because in this story, there are people who think they have it right, that they're the good guy, and they're not. And there are people in this story who think they are the bad guy, and Jesus shows them that they are not. And it comes back to this question of who's aligned with Jesus and who's not. Now, who are those who receive and accept and believe his forgiveness, and who are those who do not? Um, What does that look like? And um, as, I, you know, as I was thinking about this, as you see Jesus interact with Levi and the sinners and the tax collectors, there's something that changes, and people know it. They can kind of smell it, right? Like my wife has this really cool hand lotion, and it smells like lavender, and I love it, and I can always tell when she's used it. She walks in the room, there's just an aroma, I can smell it. When Jesus enters the situation, when he interacts with people, and he shows and expresses love to them, people know it, and they either reject it, or they begin to believe it themselves. So the main idea I want us to think about this morning is kind of weeding through that. Like there is this salve of forgiveness that Jesus applies to people. And um, how they begin to answer the question is who's righteous and who's not righteous changes. But I think it's as simple as this. Who's aligned with Jesus? Like who's with him and who's not interested in him? Who wants to be part of what he's doing and who has no interest in all in what he has to say or what he's doing? In the scriptures, the idea of being righteous, um, you know, we don't use that language. You know, if I came to you and said, hey, I'm righteous, you'd be like, and you're also uninteresting, right? Um, like, we don't talk that way. But, but listen to how the scriptures talk about righteousness. Psalm 34:15 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So to be righteous means God's eyes are upon you. 
Proverbs 3, verse 33, he blesses the home of the righteous. Well, that sounds good to me. Like, I'd, I'd like God's blessing. Proverbs eleven thirty: the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life. So the imagery here is that, like, the fruit of being righteous, the fruit of being numbered among the righteous, the fruit of being considered the righteous leads to life, the tree of life. You know, a reference back to Genesis where this gift of immortality and peace and being with God, the tree of life, the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. And then Paul in Romans chapter, chapter uh, 1 verse 17 talks about how the righteousness will live by faith. Like there's something about righteous that we need to understand, that we need to take in. You know, what makes you righteous? And I promise you, you have different ways of thinking about this. Uh, when I had kids and they were very little and I would take them to the doctor, I would go into the pediatrician's office and there was this first section for the kids who are not sick. And the kids who are not sick get to go in there because they're getting shots or whatever. But then all of us with sick kids, kind of with our shoulders slumped, are like, okay, move along, move along, pushing our kids into the sick section, right? I know those parents weren't shaming me, but there's like a little bit of parenting righteousness going on there. Or think about when your kids misbehave. Maybe yours never do and never have. Mine have sometimes. And uh, I remember when they were little, if they were really into it and threw a temper tantrum in the middle of church, and remember, I work for the church, and I'm thinking, oh, everybody's thinking I'm a horrible parent. You know, it's like this parenting righteousness thing. You know, what is the thing you use to determine who's in and who's out? Like, who's got it together and who doesn't? Who's the person you admire because of what they've done in their career or whatever it is, and you think to yourself, that's their primary definition? You know, newsflash, everybody retires. Like, it's not enough. Like, where do you find your righteousness? For the Pharisees, for the tax collectors, for the, for the sinners who are here, for Jesus, there's an idea of what does it mean to be numbered among the righteous, in the crew of those beloved of God, the ones upon whom God's blessing flows on. What does it mean to be aligned with Jesus? And the experience of and the sense of need for forgiveness seems to be like the litmus test for understanding if you're part of the righteous group or not. Have you experienced the forgiveness of God? Do you know what the forgiveness of God is like? What we see happen here is people who reject the forgiveness of God find that they are not aligned with Jesus. They're sort of moving out over here. And people who accept the forgiveness of who Jesus is, we find them sitting at a dinner with Jesus that he likens unto a wedding feast where he's a bridegroom and the people who are there are the bride and it's this incredible celebration. So think about the people in the story. You've got the Pharisees, and they're the moralists. And then you have the disciples, and they have tons of misconceptions about who Jesus is. We've talked about this before, but you find throughout the scriptures and into the letters where the apostles say, you know, I missed this, and actually I realize it now, that God's message is for the whole world. So the disciples are there, they're learning about Jesus, but they're still trying to figure out what he's about. And then there's Levi and the sinners and the tax collectors, and they're celebrating who Jesus is, they're with him. So let's look kind of closely at that. The perspective of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the moralists, they're seeing the world through relig a religious lens, religious eyes. They're believing that righteousness or favor with God, position with God, is attained by their own ability to either keep the law or do something. And they give lots of examples just in this text. Look at verses 18 and following. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked, Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? 
They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. And so what the, what's going on here is the disciples of John are fasting because that was a sign of uh, religious devotion. It was. They were denying themselves as an expression of repentance. And then the Pharisees, especially as they approached the Day of Atonement, they didn't just fast once a week, they would fast twice a week. And it was a sign of devotion. And everyone was like, man, John's disciples fast, but the Pharisees really fast. And what you're meant to take away from this is they're actually serious about their relationship with God. They're righteous. They have favor. And um, the Pharisees see, uh, Jesus's, and see Jesus and his people, and he's like, why are you doing this? And Jesus is like, you're missing it. You're missing it altogether. I'm the whole reason that they would be fasting. I'm the reason they would want to do any of these expressions of devotion to God, and I'm here. It's like a wedding feast, and you're missing out. Jesus is redefining for them what it means to be in the company of the righteous. And Jesus is saying to be righteous right now is to sit at this table and celebrate. But they're confounded because not only is Jesus not fasting, he's with sinners and he's with tax collectors. You've got Levi. And Levi was a tax collector who would have sat in a place where when people pass by, he gathers money and they don't like giving him money for the Roman government. Just kind of imagine this. Imagine you find out you're driving down the Woodlands Parkway and all of a sudden there's a new toll booth and it says... $50 a day. And so you drive in the toll booth, and lo and behold, there's Pastor Brad working for the toll booth. And I'm like, hey, this is my new job. I get to be a pastor, but I also collect money. Like, I'm just thinking membership would dwindle here at Grace, right? There's something, you know, he's part of a corrupt government. And the Pharisees are like, this guy is used as an instrument of exploitation to our people. How can you have any interest in him? They have straight up disdain for him, but at least apathy. And Jesus is celebrating with him. Jesus is redefining who's welcome to be in the company of the righteous. And they're they're having trouble wrapping their minds around it. Because what the Pharisees think is that Levi is a sinner and therefore to be shunned. He's part of the problem and therefore to be avoided. Don't be associated with him. The Pharisees are convinced that they're not sinners and therefore they're to be praised. And so, Jesus, if you're going to have a party, why aren't we the, the primary guests? Look at all this devotion. Like, you're not fasting. We fast. What's up with that? Jesus is redefining for them what it means to be part of what he's doing. He's not shunning them. He's actually engaging in conversation with them. But he's saying, you're missing out on this feast. Uh, When I was a student at the University of Texas, my brother and I have told you some stories about this. But we were on the drag. And the drag there is right there on campus. And there are a lot of homeless people there. And we call them drag rats. And uh, it's not an affectionate term. Uh, it's, just, it's the term that's kind of come to be, they've come to be known by. And um, as Joey and I would walk up and down that path, one time I was at Starbucks or something, and Joey <clears throat> ran into a young man, and it was, it was younger than what we had normally seen on the drag. And so Joey said, hey, I'm not going to give you any money, but I'll take you to lunch. And so Joey takes Ian to lunch, and he's sitting there talking with him. And Ian was like 15 or 16 years old, and he tells Joey his story. His dad drove him down to Austin He was tired of him. I don't know what all was going on in their family, but he was tired of him. Dropped him off and said, you're on your own. That's it. And Ian, if you can just imagine being a 15 or 16-year-old, is watching all these college students walk by with all of this potential. And then he's sitting there not knowing what to do and hopeless and begging for money. And so Joey's hearing his story and begins to hear these things. And he begins to have compassion on Ian. And they actually kept up for a little while after that. Now, I'll tell you that story because... 
Typically what we do when we find someone who's suffering like that is we avoid them because we don't have anything for them. We don't know what to do to help them. And what Jesus does is he doesn't avoid the situation because he really has something to offer. He goes to the sinners, he goes to the tax collectors, and he says, we're going to have a feast. And it's going to be a feast that's like a bridegroom celebrating with the bride, and you are invited. The Pharisees don't know what to do with the sinners and the tax collectors because they don't have anything for them either. They're like, look, they're not devoted to God. They're not part of the company of the righteous. We don't know what to say. We're done with it. You know, sadly, sometimes the church acts like this. I've probably even acted like this. Or will shun or avoid people because of their brokenness or something going on in their life. But that's not who Jesus is. In fact, look what Jesus does. He moves toward Levi. He moves toward him. And he doesn't just move toward him in the sense of proximity. He moves toward him in a winning and convincing way. Look at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Jesus didn't just have this aroma about him that invited Levi to to hang out and have dinner with him. Like, everybody's coming. Everybody who doesn't have a presumption on their place before God is coming to meet with Jesus. The Pharisees are like, we don't have any interest in that. Look at those people. We don't have any interest in Jesus because look at what we do. And yet Jesus is there with Levi, the sinners, the tax collectors, and Jesus has a righteous love for Levi that begins to transform him. Levi is sick. Jesus knows it. Jesus can heal him. Levi senses his need for Jesus. And Jesus says, of course, I'm going to move toward you. You know, to the Pharisees, Jesus says, you don't think you need me because you don't think you're sick. You know, do, do you think you're sick? You know, do you think, do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see yourself as in need of God's grace? Here's the thing. If you don't see yourself as someone in need of God's grace, you're probably not going to be very interested in what Jesus has to say. But what we find with Levi and with the sinners and the tax collectors is they're interested in what Jesus has to say, and they begin to celebrate with him. They begin to express love towards him. They're enjoying dinner with him. They're having conversation with him. They're actually, you ready? worshiping God in spirit and in truth in that moment in a way that the Pharisees haven't even begun to access despite their expressions of devotion. What is the difference? You know, here's what I would here's what I'd ask you to think about. When you look at this story and you look at the Pharisees and you look at the sinners and you look at the tax collectors and you look at Jesus' disciples, who understands the life-giving message that Jesus is offering? It's those who are aligned with Jesus. It's it's those who are willing to follow him. It's those who say, okay, I'm in need of what you have to offer. And the moment that happens, Jesus has a feast for them. Who are you aligned with? Jesus is inviting them to consider something new. I didn't read this part of the, the scriptures, but I want to include it because it's part of this narrative. This is verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse, and no one pours new wine into, into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst and the skins, the, both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So Jesus is saying this to, these, to the Pharisees who are asking him this question about how do I relate to God and what does it mean to be in the company of the righteous? And there are a couple options. Option one, the Pharisees need to take their current understanding of who God is and just put some Jesus in there. That's what they need to do. What's wrong with that? If you put new wine in old wineskins, the wine ferments and it blows up the wineskins. So that's not going to work. So another idea. 
okay, we've got our way of approaching God, and we'll allow Jesus to come in, but we're going to put patches of new cloth and new leather on the wineskin, and that'll work, and it kind of does for a little while. And sometimes even spiritually this can work for you, where you think, I'll take God on my terms and I'll approach him in my own way. But eventually, the patches shrink or they stretch and the wine spills out and that's not going to work. What's the answer that Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to wrap their heads around that the tax collectors and, and Levi and the sinners have already wrapped their head around? They don't need their own way of thinking about who God is. They need an entirely new way of thinking about God, who God is embodied in an entirely new way. They need new wineskins and new wine. And what is that? Jesus himself embodies the new wine. It's a new way of approaching who God is. People are being invited to completely transform their understanding of what it means to even be in the company of the righteous. Because sinners are there. And tax collectors are there. And pastors who collect tolls are there. Like all the people you don't want to be there are there and Jesus is celebrating and saying, don't miss out on this. There's a day coming where you'll need to fast, where you'll long to celebrate the supper with me again, but it's not today. Come to the table today. It's an invitation to them to drink this new wine from these new wineskins of what Jesus is offering and it is completely different than anything they've heard before. And it's a crisis of faith for them in that moment. You know, as those who follow Jesus, as we consider what it means to be part of what he's doing, and we read this story, it's not a bad idea for us to do the same thing. To say, okay, Lord, I'm going to take and just try to put everything aside for a second, and I want to learn who you are and your message as you communicate it here in the scriptures, and that's where I'm going to start. C.S. Lewis said this, It costs God nothing so far as we know to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills it costs him crucifixion if you want a redefinition of who god is you look at jesus's compassion here and his empathy for those who are shunned and also his excitement about celebrating a meal with them his willingness and his commitment to stand up against false versions of what it means to follow him and then to enter into a dialogue that says i'm going to invite you to believe in the new wine that i have to offer and the new wineskin of who I am, that I am the Savior of heaven and earth. I want you to be part of this. It's an invitation for us to embrace it. And yet, the cost of it, and he knows this, will be crucifixion, and he doesn't blink an eye. God approaches you this morning and says, here's the deal. You've probably got all sorts of notions about who I am. I want you to start here. Let my son's words redefine for you what it means to follow me and to be part of my kingdom and to sit at my table and to be part of these new wineskins and this new wine. It's going to be wonderful for you. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen those fountains, the fountains of Bellagio in Las Vegas. Have you ever seen those on TV maybe or you've been there? And there's, it's dancing water and there's, there's songs, everything from Fly Me to the Moon to Uptown Funk, you know, it's all playing there. And people throw money in there and they make wishes, right? They throw money in there and they make wishes. And I was reading a, an article about this and one of the reporters said, what happens to the money that's in the fountains of Bellagio? Do you all know what happens to it? Apparently the first coin that was ever thrown in there is still there today. That they don't do anything with it. And as I thought about that, and, and I've seen these fountains, I thought to myself, it's a, it's a pool full of unmet wishes. Like the coins are just there. And when we approach Jesus, it's not, we're not flipping a coin and hoping that someone will hear. 
Uh, We're not just throwing something out there and, and hoping that maybe something will change. Jesus engages with us and says, look, follow me. Don't believe these false things about what it means to be in the company of the righteous. Be in the company of the righteous by being forgiven and being aligned with me. That's the secret. Align yourself with me. Come to the table when I invite you. Follow me when I say, let's go. Embrace the forgiveness I've given to you and express that forgiveness toward others. It comes comes to you at the cost of the crucifixion, which I'm willing to do. Christ invites us even this morning, to that table. Okay, so two ideas I want you to, kind of, to take away with you. One is, you're sick. You're in need of a doctor. And Jesus says he comes to offer healing. That, that ought to make us very humble people. And you know what? Very gracious people. Because we are a people who are in deep need of God's present forgiveness today. And the good news is that Jesus offers it abundantly to us. Secondly, everyone else is sick around you. And this ought to make us really kind to each other. You know, uh, don't believe the inferiority complex, right? That you're inferior to other people. You are a child of God that Jesus has said, you are worth me dying for so I can restore you to right relationship. Don't believe the lie of inferiority. But it also means don't believe the lie of superiority. You're not better than anybody else. There's nobody that we don't want to come in through the doors of Grace Presbyterian Church and hear words from our Savior Jesus so they can taste the new wine, so they can come to the table. There is only one superior one among us, and he is risen. And the rest of us are part of this family. So don't believe the lie of inferiority. Don't believe the lie of superiority. Or to put it in language as the Pharisees are, don't believe in the lie of self-righteousness. Jesus says, if you want to be among the righteous company, come with me, be aligned with me, trust in me. You know, I referenced earlier Romans chapter 1. And Paul says, the righteousness of God has been revealed from first to last. It's faith. That it's faith in this message that God has given us. That's everything in what it means to be in the company of the righteous. And so that's my thing for you to consider this week. Is are you in the company of the righteous? Which is another way of saying, are you aligned with Jesus? Everybody's invited to the feast. Everybody's invited to the forgiveness that Christ offers. Everyone's invited to this place where Jesus celebrates you and you're among a people who are seeking to celebrate one another as people who are sick, who have a doctor, but people who have experienced great grace and are seeking to express it towards one another. And of course, um, as we celebrate the supper we get to see that embodied. Christ broken for us, his blood shed for us, showing us the cost of forgiveness that cost him everything. And as those who will be called into forgiveness, it means it's going to be costly for us. But the good news is is that Jesus approaches us and says, I bear that with you and for you because my grace is sufficient. Let me pray for us as we approach the table now together. Christ, as we think about this story of you interacting with Levi and the sinners and the tax collectors, that you moved in to be among a people that all of the religious folks, all of the folks who thought they were righteous just couldn't imagine you having interest in. And yet we sit here this morning hearing this and being reminded that you take deep interest in us, that you invite us by faith to align ourselves with you, to give ourselves to the forgiveness that you've purchased for us on the cross and ask, 
that even as we celebrate the supper, that you would work that into us by grace and through faith. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.